the San Francisco Experience Podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 25, Episode 8, The BBC and Social Media as a Source of News. Talking with Mike Wendling, U.S. National Digital Reporter for the BBC. Hi, Mike. Hello. Digital media, digital news, is an important part of America's news intake. According to the Pew Research Center, over half of Americans get their news from social media, like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, X, and even TikTok. Social media has become a powerful tool for the dissemination of news. 86% of Americans get news from their smartphones, tablets, computers, at least part of the time. But how do we become more critical, discerning consumers of news from these sources and sort out fact from fiction and conspiracy theories? Mike Wendling joins us from his office in Chicago. Hello, Mike. Hello. And Mike, please tell us about your role with the BBC. Sure. Well, I'm a national digital reporter for our uh, U.S., our North America team, actually. And I report uh, to a large extent on uh, disinformation, conspiracy theories, misinformation, and social media. Uh, My day-to-day role, actually, I am doing all sorts of things, um, both for our websites, also for radio and TV But going into an election year, things like fact-checking are going to be very important. Investigating the sources of disinformation and misinformation. We have a candidate in Donald Trump who still insists, despite all the evidence, that there was widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. And he's going to repeat these claims again and again. That's the, the surface level of it, I suppose. These kinds of things, particularly with the way that information spreads on social media, they can come from anywhere. It's certainly not confined simply to the mega movement, Donald Trump supporters or the right wing of politics. There's left wing conspiracy theories. There's disinformation about all sorts of international stories, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as domestic ones. And part of my job to figure all that stuff out. Well, I'm sure in our conversation, we're going to have an opportunity to talk about probably a mega disinformation moment coming up very soon when Tucker Carlson apparently has his interview, television interview with Vladimir Putin. But let's leave that aside for one minute and come back to your role. Tell us, what is an American doing working for the BBC? And maybe start off by telling us about your association with the BBC program, BBC Trending. (laughs) <laughs> That's a good question. You know, there's uh, there's a few of us that, that work for the BBC. Certainly over on this side of the pond, there's more than a few of us. I guess, you know, it, I've been living in London for up nearly 20 years. And for most of that time, I've been working for the BBC. I was interested in radio and broadcasting. And obviously, the BBC in the UK is mm-hmm. is the pinnacle. You know, I really, I, I started by becoming a news producer, just sort of doing the graveyard shift and the overnight shifts on talk radio that's produced by the BBC. I started to get into doing longer form documentaries about business and technology, uh, along with a bit of investigative work. 
And that sort of, at that time, and we're now sort of going back nearly 15 years, there was this new thing called social media. Mm -hmm. Social networking um, was probably the more common phrase back then. I did, if you can believe it, I did a series in 2011 with the BBC's technology correspondent at the time, Rory Kathleen Jones. Uh And we, uh, we titled our series, The Secret History of social networking. So, you know, we were already sort of like looking back at the the things that had sort of led to Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, we were in your area at Facebook headquarters, at Twitter headquarters, as it was known at the time, talking talking to people. Again, this is like um, uh, 2010 and 2011 when we produced that. That was a good five or six years before the 2016 election, which many would argue, uh, you mentioned Facebook, many would argue that the the role of Facebook and the disinformation that appeared on Facebook's pages swung the election in favor of Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, that argument, you know, there's, there's there's some evidence behind that argument. I, I'm not sure if I, myself fully by that disinformation on Facebook was the deciding factor. I think there were some other things that are in there and probably it's hard to tell, but you're totally right. That was a moment. Mm-hmm. And and that was a moment that I saw. I was working in Washington during the election for a few months around uh, either side of the election. You mentioned BBC trending. I was, I was there doing some coverage for covering the social media election, uh, essentially. It was something that I'll be frank about. Not all reporters and editors really sort of understood the importance of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And certainly not the scale of it. I even myself, I remember not really realizing how big the Facebook groups that were in favor of Donald Trump were until uh, the week of the election. And uh, throughout that time, uh, there was uh, famously a hacker, Russian hacker called Guccifer or Guccifer, depending on how you want to say it. The, the person who disseminated the uh, the files from the, the hacked uh, emails from um, the, the Democratic National Committee. Yes, and I I was in a I was actually um, it, this was a, it, it seems incredible to say this now, but I I was messaging this person, um, whoever they ultimately are, uh, messaging this person back and forth on Twitter. I wrote a story about that. We wrote a story about a manufactured trend at the time that uh, pretty clearly the circumstantial evidence points to to Russia being behind it. I don't know if you know this story, but the uh, top hashtag, the moment that, th- that it was announced that Donald Trump had secured enough electoral votes to win mm-hmm. presidency was a hashtag that was CalExit, right? It was a pro-California independence <laughs> movement hashtag. And everybody did, you know, and, and certainly like there was a, a and still is a, a, a sort of a, a fringe California independence movement mm-hmm. uh, maybe you've encountered it there <laughs> but the boosting this hashtag to the very top of the uh, the trends list um, that was very important for twitter at the time were russian accounts and russian bots many of which were zapped immediately after the election and so you could go back and you could look at some of these tweets that were driving this what looked like a this massive grassroots trend and you could see it was completely astroturfed Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of stories that were popping around in, in 2016. And that is kind of led to the whole disinformation, you know, uh, uh, business, I would say. And certainly in, in terms of like journalists, the BBC and others taking it more seriously over the years. In 2020, I was one of the people who 
started the BBC's disinformation team. We had a bunch of different specialists throughout the organization, and we, we brought them together, me and a few other editors. It, it was January, uh, February of 2020, and we figured that there was going to be a number of elections throughout that year mm -hmm. and, you know, a big one in November of that year. And that if we got all of our ducks in a row, then, you know, we would be good place, best place to, to cover this kind of stuff. And of course, within a couple of weeks, we were all meeting online and witnessing perhaps the biggest wave of disinformation and conspiracy theory that anybody, that any of us have seen in our lifetimes with the onset of COVID and mm -hmm. later the anti-vax movement, which has gained a load of steam mm -hmm. from, from that pandemic. Speaking of that anti-vax yeah. movement, we actually have a presidential candidate, namely Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's trying to mount a third-party candidacy in large measure based on his anti-vax support and anti-vax stance over the years at which and, and of course he was elevated during the covid period so again disinformation in that case has sort of elevated him to a point where some polls are showing him with 13 percent support throughout the the country it's going to be very difficult for him to uh, to get on all 50 state uh, ballots but there's a good example of uh, him riding the crest of the the anti-vax disinformation wave and uh, mounting a, a presidential run in 2024 Absolutely. It's good that you bring that up. I actually went to a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. rally mm -hmm. two days before he announced his independent bid. Of course, he was trying to get the Democratic nomination. I drove to Michigan where he was giving a speech. And my main sort of task there, I didn't, well, I was not offered an interview with him directly, but my main sort of task was to find out people, who, the kind of people who were coming to see him, who mm -hmm. was drawn to him. I can separate them into roughly three baskets. One were older older folks who uh, actually had uh, living memory of the Kennedys, mm -hmm. right? And they tend to be tended to describe themselves as Democrats or Kennedy Democrats, right? You know, they more conservative than the Democratic Party is these days. Oh, very definitely, they love mm -hmm. the Kennedy name. Mm -hmm. The other group may have been was another group was disaffected Trump voters, and again, these people uh, did like the Kennedy mystique, but they had voted for Donald Trump, and they thought that he RFK Jr. has sort of the values of Trump, but with a much more pleasing and attractive public persona. Yes. And then there were then there were the anti-vaxxers, right? And in the sort of crowd of a couple of hundred people, it's tough to tell exactly how many people sort of split up into these groups. But there was certainly the, the people who were drawn by the natural health and the anti-vax message that the RFK Jr. Was, has sort of gone back and forth about during this campaign. Mm -hmm. He has appointed a prominent anti-vaxxer to be his communications chief. On the other hand, it's not something that he plays up in his stump speech. Um, he, he refers to it. He doesn't hide it, mm -hmm. uh, but he would prefer, because probably deep down he does know that, you know, while the, 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 these things are popular amongst one segment and one very energetic segment of voters, they're not broadly popular. They're not going to sort of get him into a place where you could actually threaten anybody politically. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting sort of dance that he has to play around those anti-vax views. You were in Iowa, weren't you, for the uh, caucuses just a couple of weeks ago, right? Right, yeah. 
I was in uh, Davenport in, uh, in eastern Iowa, just along the Mississippi. Give us a sense of how, how the voters, particularly the Trump voters, got energized. And of course, he won those Iowa caucuses. And of course, it was a bitterly cold few days leading up to the caucuses and the day of the caucuses. But give us a sense. I mean, here was, a, here was Donald Trump's first opportunity in four years to stand before voters and uh, of course, he he won overwhelmingly. Give us a sense of the energy that you that you witnessed on the part of those Trump voters who, for the first time in four years, had an opportunity to either vote for him or DeSantis or Nikki Haley or any of the other candidates, any of the other Republican candidates were were running. Does he? Does Trump still have that magic with his with his voters? Because you were right there at the uh, at those uh, at those caucuses. I mean, the enthusiasm was there. You mentioned, of course, the weather. It was a quite a brutal cold snap. And so the number of people, you, you're going to need enthusiasm to sort of get people out <laughs> yes. on a dark January night when it's 20 below zero, right? So, the, so, you know, naturally the people who show up to a caucus are enthusiastic anyway. And these were the enthusiastic people amongst the enthusiastic people, right? You know, it's hard to sort of generalize and... Uh, you know, I have been to Iowa several times over the past year, and I have found varying enthusiasm for for Donald Trump. I mean, I'm sure that he will, assuming that, you know, he makes it to the election in terms of his legal issues and so forth, that he will most likely win the state. But, it you know, I, I, in speaking to people, it's not been universal that I've noticed that all of his voters or all of his sort of previous voters are are stepping in line. But certainly amongst those people who came out to the Republican caucuses, they were certainly very enthusiastic. The caucus I was in was one of many that was in Davenport Central High School. So there was a few dozen caucuses that were a few dozen precincts that were caucusing there. And I just camped out in, in one particular one. Around three quarters of the voters were for Donald Trump. But the interesting thing, I think, is what was actually animating them. And it, it was different. I, I wasn't in the caucus in 2016, but I was certainly talking to voters and, and watching what, what was going on. In 2016, Donald Trump was obviously a kind of a, an unknown quantity. Right. How, how would he govern? What would he actually do if he would uh, attain office? This was all a matter of uh, you know, a large amount of debate. Now we know what he's like in office, although I suppose there's still a lot of questions about how he would govern in a second term. There's not a whole lot of people who have um, have a lot of uncertainty about Donald Trump. And his supporters, I get the sense from the room and from the people who were speaking for him in that room, that it's more visceral. They weren't necessarily talking about his ideas or proposals or the document from the Heritage Foundation that outlines what he might do in a, in a second term. They mm -hmm. were talking about grievances and about long sweep of American history and how they felt that they had been betrayed. They were very conspiratorial. Uh, a man stood up and questioned why, even before the voting had started, that the news media had said that Donald Trump would win. Now, again, mind you, three quarters of this room was in favor of Donald Trump mm -hmm. and probably had no doubt that he was going to win. 
but sheer, the sheer fact that this had happened before they had voted in that room enraged people. People, you know, gave this man a, a large round of applause for insinuating that there was something crooked or that the news media was trying to sway or put their fingers on the scale one way or the other. Can I ask you a question? Did you identify yourself as a BBC reporter? Yeah, I, I did. I, I wasn't in front of the whole room. Uh-huh. I certainly walked up to various Trump supporters and You know, there was myself, there was a a reporter from the local newspaper and probably a couple of other reporters. You know, it wasn't um, it certainly wasn't sort of the media hub of Des Moines that that Iowa is. But there was a couple of journalists around. I'm curious, did they have a sense? Did they treat you a little bit differently? Did they have a sense of, you know, the BBC, this global news organization which has been known for almost a hundred years for factual fact-based evidence-based news was there was there any respect any acknowledgement of that or did they lump the bbc together with cnn and msnbc and fox etc how did they how did they react to when they heard that you were from the bbc it's a good question because Generally, I find that being from the BBC rather than a U.S. media outlet mm-hmm. allows me a certain sort of respect, and yes. certainly more people will talk to me than if I say I'm from CNN or, or, or Fox. I like to tell the story of, you know, I can I, I talk to Proud Boys who and QAnon believers who would certainly not talk to CNN. On the other hand, I also go into extreme left-wing communities and Antifa and anarchist people, and they certainly wouldn't talk to somebody from Fox News or, or most mainstream U.S. Uh, newspapers, say, you know, they wouldn't talk to the, to the Washington Post or the New York Times, say. So it's, it definitely it definitely affords me a, a greater access, yes. I think, coming uh-huh. from an international news outlet, and particularly one that has, you know, brand recognition, like, like the the bbc you know certainly there was no hostility in that room Mm -hmm. um even even though people were railing against the media it wasn't it wasn't personal at all and that's generally tends to be how i find it Uh, people will will definitely sort of go on long rants about the the media before offering to to buy me lunch after our interviews (laughs) (laughs) Let's, let's talk about let's talk about the the largest disinformation story coming out of 2020, and it's now, of course, uh, being resurrected by the Trump campaign during the 24 campaign, and that is the stolen election of 2020. Of course, I assume that's going to continue to be a disinformational, a disinformational story, which is going to circulate throughout the campaign. How do you, as a journalist, deal with that? Again, that's a that's a good question, and and the answer I suppose is complicated. One of the things that I know is that it's not going away, and what that means is potentially frightening. But perhaps we can prepare for what the consequences of that are. Uh, Donald Trump will, like he did in 2020, seed doubt about the voting system, and he has consistently done that. You know, he, he doesn't tweet anymore, but he definitely uh, broadcasts his thoughts on Truth Social and, and other outlets. And he hasn't let up in his belief that the voting system is rigged against him. Mm-hmm. What what will happen is, you know, the, the world of mega influencers will come up with various real news events, but uh, with their own spin. You know, a truck driving by a voting 
box and a video will be interpreted in a certain way to make their claims to cast doubt on the whole voting system. We know this playbook because we saw it in 2020. What happens from there will be very interesting, you know, particularly when we look at, number one, what the result of the election is, which will still be in very much in doubt till the end, I'm sure, but also the reaction to whatever the result is. It was about six months ago. I saw an interview with former Attorney General Barr, who was Donald Trump's Attorney General. He had also served as Attorney General during uh, during the Bush administration. So he's widely known and widely respected as a for his role as Attorney General. While he did not subscribe to any form of electoral fraud, he did acknowledge, however, that in numerous states, different states had changed, you know, some of the electoral rules. I know they did here in California. Uh, 22 million ballots were sent out unsolicited on the order of the governor, and about 80% of those 22 million were returned. What happened to the... The point that I want to make is that Barr made the point that, no, there was not widespread electoral fraud, but yes, there were, in selected states, some very significant loosening of voter registration, voter identification, use of mail ballots, etc. Now, all of those changes were done within the context of the law of those states. And he made the point that there's a lot of sour grapes on the part of the Republicans who could not stop these changes from happening. The point that I want to raise is there are there were though while those changes were not electoral fraud the appearance that they gave to the result left questions in the minds of a lot of, if you look at some of the numbers of uh, moderate Republicans who are uneasy about some of those results. But Bill Barr really explained it best when he said that, yes, sour grapes on the part of the Trump people, and, uh, and essentially, if you want to stop changes, administrative changes in the electoral process in selected states, you know, you've got to you've got to play by the electoral rules. And the Republicans in a lot of states just weren't able to do that. That's a good point, too, because some of those changes have been rolled back. Some of them will be made permanent. Some of them will be going further this year than than, than in previous years. For example, I was just in Connecticut covering a a vote scandal there, a real vote scandal, and um, Connecticut is starting to loosen up some of its rules about uh, uh, voting, absentee voting, and no excuse absentee voting, and and this kind of stuff. You know, it's certainly the case that the pandemic led to yes. loosening up of uh, voter rules. Now, the Democrats generally have historically been very good at capitalizing on that, right? They have organizations and systems set up to help people vote, essentially. Generally, what we see, because, you know, if you look at sort of the statistical analysis, they, the, the, the Democratic Party has, a, from election to election, has a slight advantage electorally. Mm-hmm. So they want to expand the pool of, of voters. Republicans have gone the opposite way, mm-hmm. and several Republicans, including Trump, are running on essentially restricting right. the, the vote. We've seen in states like Florida, where there's, you know, you go back to the 2000 election even, and you see large numbers of people being struck off. 
again, legally, because, you know, they forbid felons from, from voting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then some people get, may get caught up in that, are perfectly legally have the right to vote, right? Stories going back nearly 25 years now. So that's, I mean, you know, but that's politics, right? So, right. you know, you want your people to vote. You want as many of them as possible to come out and vote. Right. Obviously, some of the and, and most of the things that Donald Trump was saying after the last election didn't have anything to do with this. It was sour grapes because he, he lost and it was throwing anything at the wall and seeing what would stick right. in order to discredit the whole process. The interesting dilemma, I think, for Republicans uh, is this. And I've, I've spoken to organizations and, and activists who are sort of worried about this situation, right? If you have a, a, a system where, a leader rather, that tells everybody that the voting system is rigged against them, then that discourages voting. Yes. Why play the game if you uh, if your vote doesn't count? Why, why, why would you vote? The other thing is that by encouraging people to be enthusiastic about same-day voting and you know not voting absentee or, or casting doubt on postal voting, what you do is you make it very contingent on the people who sort of show up on the day. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens if the weather is bad in Wisconsin on election day, mm-hmm. 2024? You know, what happens if a, there's a tropical storm rolling through Georgia at the time or whatever? The people who are affected by this are going to be the people who waited until election day to vote. They're going to be mostly Republicans. And the Republican Party is aware of this. They've started a initiative for to get people to bank their vote. In other words, to avail themselves of those opportunities for early voting and absentee voting and postal voting wherever the, wherever possible. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting dilemma, that, and 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 actually sort of a, an internal Republican Party issue that some people are trying to address. A kind of counter message against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike. You have been there. You are there in the front lines of the uh, the disinformation, historic disinformation, going back to your first story in 2011, coming up to 2016, when there apparently there was quite a bit of disinformation in that election. Then moving on to the COVID pandemic in 2020 with vaccination disinformation and continuing up to 2024 with the disinformation that's going to unfold for us uh, in this election. And we haven't had we haven't had any time to focus on the British elections that'll be probably be coming up uh, later this year and what role Absolutely. disinformation <laughs> may be and that's probably a whole other that's a whole other conversation but mike not the, to mention the elections in russia india and elsewhere <laughs> and, and mexico our our neighbor Absolutely. so of course so we will you will be back we will have you back as our as our disinformation specialist but uh, mike in the remaining few minutes of the podcast what are your closing thoughts for our listeners who again were for those of us who are voters here in the United States or in the UK, we have a lot of listeners in the UK, um, faced with this, you know, a, a critical vote later this year. What should we, what should we be on the lookout for in terms of uh, where do we, where should we be getting our information from? What's the kind of information we should be relying on? You know, there's some common sense rules here, but but give us in these closing few minutes, give us some some guidance here because you deal with this every day. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a few basic rules of thumb that everybody, me and my colleagues and people, journalists who work in this area, always come back to. And they are this. It's If you see something online, or if you see a post on social media or even a story, and it makes you feel something very intense, just take a, just pause. Because, you know, the best propaganda and disinformation doesn't work with your head. It works with your heart. It goes to your emotions. It's, it's designed to trigger your emotions. Mm. And social media is the same way. It, it, it's, you know, designed to get you to take action. Click that like button or retweet or the angry button or whatever it is. So emotional triggers are kind of a good sign that you should just maybe sort of check into this. You know, there's basics, and I'm sure that your listeners probably have a good bead on sources of information and who might be reliable and who might not, and how to separate fact from opinion. It's it's a, I suppose, a, an issue that we need to think about education for our children and for the next generation about. There's hardcore segments of society who are uh, almost impervious to mainstream media. And that's, uh, you know, not very much of a hope to sort of like penetrate them. But the more we can do, and of course, I would obviously point to my own employer as a trusted source of mm-hmm. news. I, I think this, you know, the thing to think uh, to also to remember about journalists and reporters of all types is that there's a reason why they call journalism the first draft of history. It's because it gets revised. Journalists aren't perfect; they don't get it right, but they at least try. Social media is muddied with a lot of people who aren't necessarily out to uh, give uh, or disseminate information in an impartial manner, but to push political points and judging or having a shrewd sense of judgment between the people who are that kind of journalist and the people who are more uh, there to give accurate information is is probably pretty key too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's an ongoing and actually, you know, experts and researchers who have studied this for much longer than I have will, will say it's, it's a very complicated thing. It's not, not a necessarily an easy thing, but um, together I have perhaps a little bit of, some would say, misguided optimism in the fact that our information systems can can potentially get better over time. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, tell us about your your book, Day of Reckoning, which will be coming mm-hmm. out in May of 2024. And after that note of optimism, I'm going to give you some some uh, dark um, thoughts, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> my my book, Day of Reckoning, it's it's a follow on. I wrote a book um, after my experiences in the 2016 election and just afterwards about the alt right and that movement, and that was, I suppose, a freewheeling movement that was largely galvanized by the candidacy of Donald Trump. It was it ranged from you know um, conservatives who were anti political correctness to hardcore neo-Nazis. Um, they fought a lot, but put their differences aside to back Trump and were quickly disillusioned and the movement quickly fell apart. What I have discovered, I suppose, in uh, my reporting trips here and in my the last year and a half and working full-time in this country is that far-right fringes have become more serious Uh, more paranoid, more deeply into conspiracy theories. And at the same time, they have moved steadily into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, They now have very important jobs in 
Congress. You know, they are uh, through the MAGA movement uh, at various levels of uh, organizations. And a lot of the book is also um, on the ground reporting from all over the country into some of the people who are influencing this movement and spreading the conspiracy theories and people who have simply just been caught up in them and are um, everyday believers, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So I've put all of that, a book that you can order from any good bookstore. There's, you know, I won't sort of name any brand names, but you know where to find books. Uh, It can be (laughs) pre-ordered now. It's coming out in May from Pluto Press in the UK. It it contains a a lot of my uh, on-the-ground reporting uh, from from here uh, over the past few years. And of course, Mike, you'll be back here on the San Francisco Experience podcast to discuss that book on May 15th at 2 p.m. So we're looking forward to having you back and having the opportunity to discuss that book with you. And again, and once again, for my listeners, please do make an effort to pre-order this book because you'll have an opportunity to listen to the discussion that Mike and I are going to have of this book, which is called The Day of Reckoning, which you can, again, you can pre-order. And it will just make your enjoyment of that podcast on May 15th that much more enjoyable having having gotten to know Mike through this podcast and also having read his book, The Day of Reckoning, before you listen to that podcast on May 15th. And Mike, how can our listeners follow you? I don't tweet that much anymore, but I might start soon. I'm M. Lendling on Twitter. You can find me on Blue Sky. You can find me on Threads and, you know, the usual sort of Facebook, LinkedIn. By all means, send me a message. I enjoy hearing from everybody around the world. Okay. Well, once again, Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Looking forward to having you back to discuss your book, The Day of Reckoning, on May 15th at two o'clock. Thank you. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 495. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot has recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been Jim Herlihy with the San Francisco Experience podcast coming to you from San Francisco. 